Welcome to the ABOP podcast. ABOP is the Alliance of Black Orchestral Percussionists, a nonprofit organization that focuses on mentoring future generations of Black percussionists. My name is Raynor Carroll. I am your host and an ABOP founder. Thank you for joining us. My guest today is an ABOP founder, Mr. Michael Crusoe. Mr. Crusoe was principal timpanist with the Seattle Symphony and the Seattle Opera from 1980 until his retirement in 2017. He has also been guest timpanist with the Oregon Symphony, San Francisco Opera, and the Los Angeles Philharmonic. Mr. Crusoe was principal timpanist for the Mostly Mozart Festival in 1991 and 92, and is currently principal timpanist with the Teton Music Festival, a title he has held since 2010. In addition to the concert hall, Mr. Crusoe can be heard on many motion picture and studio soundtracks. Mr. Crusoe taught at the Waterloo Music Festival and was an adjunct faculty member at the University of Washington from September 1991 to January 2017. Michael, welcome to the ABOP podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Great to have you here. Let's start with the Seattle Symphony and your years there and what the job was. Because in looking back in my experience with the Phil and then looking at what you've done, you know, I, I, I think you have a very unique situation that perhaps you tell me whether you knew this going into it or not, but you had, you know, your standard dose of symphonic repertoire that I believe you did in your so-called winter spring season. But then you were an opera orchestra. Is it throughout the summer? Yeah, well, it was actually, it was throughout the year. When I first joined the orchestra, we had what's called a tripart agreement, where the Seattle Symphony was also the orchestra for the ballet and Seattle Opera. At one point, I forget what year, but the ballet broke away on their own and established their own orchestra. But we continue being the orchestra for the opera you know, as well as being the Seattle Symphony. And the opera services were incorporated into our annual season. And then during the summer, whatever summer operas we did, that was often as extra work. So that's how that worked. And then on top of that, your orchestra recorded a lot of movie soundtracks. My point being, did you know that there was so much involved in this, in, in your gig, when you, when you won no, your audition? I, <laughs> no, I, I did not. I mean, I, I just, uh, well, I knew opera was coming, and I was I was kind of concerned about that because I hadn't had any opera experience. I had no idea we, we would become like one of the most recorded orchestras in the country. Yeah. Uh, it, it was an eye-opening experience. I mean, a very encouraging one, too, I, I, I might add. You know, I, I equated it in terms of repertoire. What the situation that I went into, it turned out to be as if you were playing for the New York Field and the Met. I mean, in terms of repertoire, you know. Right. Uh, it, so uh, I grew up pretty fast, <laughs> <laughs> repertoire-wise. And, yeah, and you were a studio orchestra, as in, you know, a Hollywood studio orchestra also. Well, uh, yeah, we did some. We, we didn't do a lot. That that kind of branched off into a freelance gig uh, where one of the musicians in the orchestra took on the role of being a contractor. So he would contract a lot of stuff in Hollywood. What we did initially uh, with Seattle is we did record a couple of movie soundtracks. 
I remember you and I went to see one of the movies that uh, some cheap sci-fi type movie, you know. Uh, <laughs> and then we also did uh, we did the original soundtrack for Stargate the movie. We did Die Hard, a right. couple of those. We did some tracks from Mr. Holler's Opus. Uh, we recorded some music that, uh, for Star Trek, and then also a movie uh, about Christopher Columbus, which was a very good. I thought it was a very good soundtrack. So. That's what we did initially, you know, to kind of fill in the gap, so to speak. But eventually that branched off into like freelance work. Uh, right. So none of that, well, not, you know, not none of it, but the symphonic part, that that's what you had prepared for. That's what we study for, you know, the Beethoven, right. the Tchaikovsky, et cetera, et cetera. But then the throw in complete productions of operas. And like we say, some of these soundtracks, which have very extensive timpani and percussion parts, that's a new thing. That's a few feathers in your hat right there. <laughs> 37 years of that, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was, that was, it was quite an experience, quite a ride. It really was. Yeah, and it seems like... Uh, using orchestras in these multifaceted ways has become the thing to do, but it also brings in some revenue because a lot of the orchestras are now doing these films where they play live to the film, which as we know is very different from recording the tracks because when you record a cue, you record one cue for what, 30 minutes or so, and then you go on to the next cue. But in these live performances, it's continuous. So it brings on a new challenge to the percussion and the timpani section because yeah. there, there isn't the break. There isn't a that's, break between each cue. And that's right, not yeah. the way that that's not the way the cues are, or the, or the soundtrack was written. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's another challenge for us to deal with. And, you know, I, I would say we're, we're amongst the first that had to do that because all the orchestras are doing it now. Just prior to Gerard Swartz becoming music director, we did some live shows where it was like silent film. Mm -hmm. And then we were in the pit recording to the film. And right. uh, the general manager at the time wanted to do more of that. Uh, Maestro Swartz, when he came in, he said, no, that was he didn't want to see the season expanded that way. I and he, he, he told him, he says, because... That's really not what symphony orchestras are for, right? You know, so we started doing that, but he put the the kibosh, you know, <laughs> on 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 you know on that approach because uh, that the general manager at the time he was looking at trying to expand our season that way. Well, right. it turns out though our season was expanded through subscription concerts, I uh, see, based on Marshall Schwartz's effort. But that did continue to be a trend among orchestras. You know, yeah. and uh, yeah. and even getting into more pop shows, you know, where pop artists would come in and you'd back them up, uh, you know, right. in concerts. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, the bottom line is funding and bringing in resources and, you know, growing your ticket sales and right. whatever is popular with the audience. And I, I think it's become a big thing with, like I say, the orchestras doing or playing live to films now because they wouldn't be doing it if if it wasn't successful, if it wasn't profitable. And it is because, right. you know, the medium of film, it, it covers everybody pretty much. Right. Um, and I mean, you know, you have to, you, the fact that about it is you have to adjust, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just a yeah. fact of life, you know? Right. In you order to survive. Uh, yeah, exactly. 
Yeah. And, you know, the L.A. Phil, we are fortunate we have the Hollywood Bowl in the summer, which seats 18,000. So if we got a small crowd of 9,000, that's three or four times what we'd have, you know, in our fall season. So, you know, it's a profitable thing. And we did and they still do a lot of the pops programs during the summer. And, you know, it pays the bills. It pays the musicians. Uh, I'm not sure it pays the percussionists, but we're trying to get we're trying to get our cut too. You know, because that that's another part of it. When they're doing all these movies, because of the setup, the logistics, we need more bass drums. We need more tam tams. We need more snare drums because everybody's got to have one. There's no time in between to rearrange a setup. So I would think this is a time for a lot of the orchestras to you know stock up on their percussion instead of renting these things because they're done all the time they should buy this equipment so yeah exactly i look look at that as a positive and whether the timpanist needs eight or nine timpani on stage too that's a possibility too (laughs) so let me ask you about that and, and the scores that you did i noticed for me when i when i do any of the soundtrack things whether it was in the studio or with the fill that it tends to be the lower range is where they write the most low C's, low D's, yeah. you know, right. not not so right. much the upper octave, but that range. And that for me, I don't want to have my 29 inch drum going down to a low D, you know, yeah, <laughs> while the yeah. while the 32 is the low C. So you got to have a couple of 32s out there. You got to have a couple of 29s. What was your experience? Pretty much the same? I still pretty much went with a standard set of four. And what I often ran into was, you know, I'd have a passage where, you know, the highest note, the G, you know, and everything else was below that, you know. Right. You got one and eighth notes and sixteenth notes. And uh, a lot of these, the Hollywood composers that I work with, they basically, in their mind, they're laying the groundwork and then they just leaving it up to you to fix it and whatnot. And I know there was this one, I forget the composer's name. It's embarrassing because he's very famous. I think he scored the Ten Commandments. Uh, he uh, and his son is following in his footsteps. We did a session with them, and he conducted, and there was a low D. And they didn't. he didn't realize, he didn't know that I could actually be able to play a low D on, on the <laughs> drum. They were just fascinated. I'm sorry, low C. They were just fascinated with that. Well, see, to me, you know, it was right on the verge of sounding like a paper bag, <laughs> you know, but it was, it was coming across in the recording. Yeah. You know, it was singing. I think it was what helped was the bases around me. Right. They were they kind of helped, you know, they, yeah. they helped enhance the sound that, you know, that I couldn't get. Right. Uh, all, you know, totally. So you could get a score where they have eight different notes and they say you need eight drums. Right. You right. know, like a, a note for each drum, when in fact right. four drum, in some cases, a three drum part. Yeah. You know, yeah. you had time to change notes as necessary, but you actually had to assume a role of of an arranger at times. Right, right. Studio, in a studio setting, yeah. Let the composers compose, let the timpanists play the timpani, and let them figure out what they need for the part. I remember one session when I, I showed up and I was walking in, the composer was there, and he said, oh, Mike, I'm glad you're doing this one. Well, I knew what that meant. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't well, glad you were doing this one. <laughs> right and when i got in there after i set my case up first thing i did was pull out my pencil made it on the stand <laughs> have it ready because i knew i was going to start you know having yeah. to do some rearranging you know right because i mean right. a lot of times they have like these active leaps when 
it will work just as well in the same range, you know, without right. beeping all over the place, you know? Yeah. And the problem is never that it's too high. It's always the low stuff that they want. They yeah, want to re reinforce that baseline. And, but exactly. you know, a part of that is us, as in probably they weren't quite writing this 50 years ago, but as our technique and the playing has improved, we do it. You, you know, we, we, we do these things and they come to expect it. So yeah, that's the, true. the fault is ours too. We shouldn't be able yeah. to play it, but we play it. We figure it out, you know? I mean, that, that's a good point. Well, like I said, when I fix parts, where's the incentive <laughs> to write it correctly to begin with? You know, just yeah. write it and then hand it to Mike and, you know. Right. So let's go backwards now. You grew up in St. Louis? Uh, yeah, I grew up in uh, North St. Louis. It's, uh, it was nicknamed DeVille. I'm not sure why. You know, there were some famous people that were in that, that lived in that area. Ron Townsend of the Fifth Dimension and Bobby McFerrin. Uh, oh, shoot, there are several uh, names escape me, but it was called the Ville in North St. Louis. And it was a, it was a pretty popular area for inner city. And a big thing in our area was drum corps. I mean, if you played in the, in the drum corps, you were like a neighborhood celebrity, you know? <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah. And that's, uh, that's why I initially got my influence from. I had an older cousin, Philip, who played in drum corps. And uh, when I heard them play, that's when I knew I wanted to play drums. I mean, I started right. out playing piano. I mean, I didn't get past the boogie woogie. You know, that was <laughs> <laughs> that was my thing on the piano. But then when I heard Philip play drums, I thought that's what I want to do. So, at what point did you get interested in classical? It was after high school when I started college. I started taking private lessons for the first time. Uh, it was with Rich O'Donnell, who was former principal percussionist. Sir. And he started me on Malice. Then uh, he introduced me to Tiffany. At one point, the St. Louis Philharmonic called me to play. It wasn't for Tiffany. It was to play extra percussion. I think I played triangle or something like that. But when I was on stage and I heard the orchestra play, that's what triggered my interest in classical music. So then I delved into it deeper. And of the percussion instruments, it was timpani that I was particularly drawn to. You know, I was just fascinated by a drum of musical pitch. Right. That's, that's just what, what uh, fascinated me. So that was my initial interest in classical music. And so th from there, I saw a community orchestra that needed a timpanist. And it was there where I started to grow in the repertoire. So studying all the time and learning the rep and you favored timpani from the beginning. Yeah, I did from the beginning. Uh, I <laughs> you avoided I, I the to, Porgy and Bess and the, yeah, the Sorcerer's to, Apprentice. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say I used to joke that uh, the first time I tried to learn Sorcerer's Apprentice is when I realized I wanted to play Tiffany. <laughs> <laughs> so bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kind of thing. So tell us more about your studies and your, your lessons with O'Donnell and how did that go? And it, you eventually studied with Rick Holmes, right? That's correct. Yeah. I initially started with uh, Rich O'Donnell and he introduced me to Tiffany and then he referred me to Tom Stubbs, who was the percussionist and assistant Tiffany. It's with Tom is who got me started on the repertoire, or uh, Tiffany repertoire. We covered a lot. And then when it reached the point where he felt he had no more to teach me, he passed me on to Rick. 
so that I could continue more. I mean, Rick was the tempest, right? So, right. So Tom laid the groundwork and then he referred me to Rick and then I started with Rick from there. I see. What really spurred you on? What kept you going? Well, first of all, let me let me backtrack a little bit. You know, when, when I was in high school, the uh, percussion section of the St. Louis Symphony came and they did a, uh, a presentation. At the time, it was Rich O'Donnell and uh, Rick Holmes was the tempest. And then there were two other percussionists whose name I, I, I can't, I don't remember. And they came and they did a presentation. That really fascinated me. That's what made me want to grow more in the area of percussion. Uh, what kept me going was the more I learned and developed, the more I wanted to learn. I just felt like there was more out there in the way of repertoire that I didn't know about, that I craved. And what's, what's really ironic is uh, one of the composers, you know, when I was searching for new repertoire was Howard Hansen. And there were only there were only three Howard Hansen symphonies that I came across that I knew, and I thought that's all he wrote. Mm-hmm. Well, long story short, it turns out in Seattle, we recorded all the Howard Hansen works, and there was a lot more than, <laughs> you know, <laughs> than what I what I was exposed to initially. So it was this desire, this craving to learn more of the repertoire that just kept me going. You know, there was right. never enough in yeah. terms of the rep. You know, if so, I learned something new, that meant I just wanted to add more to it. Right. You know yeah. So did you do that through attending orchestra concerts and listening to LPs and radio? How did you educate yourself in that way? I, I educated myself with, by going to the library and studying scores. Ah. with recording yeah and right. i didn't go to concerts i always went to rehearsals whenever uh-huh. i could go to a rehearsal i went and, and said you know and i would get uh and my teacher would ask for permission for me right. to come and the reason for that is because i wanted to hear how the orchestra worked you know and i wanted to hear how the interaction between the musicians and the conductor was you know right not the final polish product you know i wanted to learn how you got there you know what i mean right yeah so that's why i never attended i shouldn't say i never attended concerts but i always attended rehearsals whenever i could and then it was from the rehearsal particular rehearsal that i went to on some of those i wanted to then hear the performance after hearing how they worked and put stuff together right you know and see the consistency of it all yeah yeah and there's nothing like the live music you can listen to recordings, which is great, but there's nothing like seeing the interaction on stage, seeing how it develops, see how things change or stay the same. And, you know, with us hearing different mallets, hear how they sound in the hall versus on stage, it's all a big learning process. Right. And the other thing I felt I needed to be careful of, I mean, and I say this in general, is that when you listen to recordings, in order to learn a work or familiarize yourself with a work, it's really important to take that into context. You don't get grounded into a particular style according to the recording. Right. You know? So sometimes I would take a work, or like the Rite of Spring, I would pull up a recording by Chicago, then I pull up one by Boston, and then I pull up one by one of the European orchestras. And the difference, you know, it reminded me why it's important to always keep recordings in context and to realize too, once you're on stage live, you know, to actually play it with somebody, it's going to be yet different again. And then you're going yeah. to be hearing things that you that you don't hear or pick up on on the recording. So 
it's a good base to work from, but it's not the end all. You know what I mean? And it's Absolutely. really important to keep that in context. Yeah, and the recordings can be indicative of the conductor, what right. their style is, what their tempo is. Right. The engineers can affect the dynamics. And of course, it's the orchestra too. Like you said, you you listen to a couple of American and a European and the European style for me when I was studying and listening to, let's say the Berlin Philharmonic, a very different sound. You know, it wasn't yeah. better, it wasn't worse. It's just a different sound, a different way of playing. Right. Uh, right. That mixed with the conductors, with their tempi, and like I say, the engineers, <laughs> I, I give the engineers a lot of credit because <laughs> they're the ones with the dials that either turn us up or turn us down. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, it affects the overall recorded sound, you know, so it's yeah. very influential. And to emphasize your point, I think it's very important that in today's world that they view several different YouTube recordings because that's that's what they use today. A lot of the students use YouTube, which is fine, but don't stick to one, two, or three. Just get a variety so that you can see what's out there. And then the bottom line, as I think we're saying, is to be flexible and you know be able to do different styles, different tempi, et cetera, on notice when, when the conductor asks, you know, he doesn't want to hear. Well, that's the way I learned it. That's the way. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's the way I heard it. So yeah, I think that's, mean, that's... The way Saul did it. You know, <laughs> right. Well, you're not Saul, and he's not oh, conducting. You know. So yeah, 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 all all good stuff. So you did quite a bit of teaching. Was that the University of Washington? Yeah, at the uh, UW, and I just taught timpani. I got called because the orchestra conductor at the UW wasn't happy with the timpani plan. The late Peter Eros, who was a conductor then at the UW, you know, when he complained, you know, Tom said, well, I think we should get Mike Crusoe here on, you know, on Stafford. And that's how I got, I got contacted. So I just taught timpani. Occasionally I uh, did teach some percussion because I had a couple of students who uh, who went to audition for grad school at one of the other schools. Like uh, one one was uh, Curtis, and he he came back. He was really distraught, and I said, "Well, what what's wrong? What you know? What did you didn't like about your audition?" He says, "Well, they told me my temperature player was fine." He says, "But I needed a lot of work and percussion." Right. Alan Abel told him this, and and Don Liuzzi, you know. Yeah. So I just I pulled out my percussion rep, all right, and you know I I got a, a couple of my Rain or Carol books, <laughs> and uh, Arthur Press recording, you know, and I just went through different things, you know, from tambourine to you know snare drum, you know, and, and took them through some rep, but Shahrazad and all that tambourine, just work on some fine details, and then he went back in the audition for IU, and he got accepted. All right. And he got a scholarship. Yeah. That only happened on a couple of occasions, but otherwise I just stuck to timpani. Yeah, it's great for our students to be well-rounded. They can have a focus, whether they enjoy timpani or percussion or let's say mallets or jazz vibes, but it's to their benefit that they're well-rounded and they can sit down and play drum set, play hand percussion, do a timpani gig, play mallets and feel comfortable in all the instruments. And it's in our case, it's when you get that gig, that's when you can really focus on one in particular, if that's right. what you want to do. But right. you know, when you're making that journey and you don't know what's in front of you, you want to be able to take whatever gigs that come 
like I say, whether it's playing timpani in an orchestra or whether it's sitting down and playing congas in a jazz band. So it really is to your benefit to be versatile. Yeah, well, yeah. I always say you need to establish the foundation before you start specializing. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so in the case of my student drum set, wasn't a problem because he studied with Tom. You know, keep mallets wasn't a problem. But he did not have any experience in the way of a lot of the standard orchestral percussion realm. That'll be an issue, yeah. perhaps. Yeah, you know, sure. in studying the basic literature that we do, it gives you a strong foundation, I think, in symphonic yeah. percussion. You know, with the right. standard audition list or the standard rep, it's good stuff. It's it's always yeah. been. I mean, if you can play at a high level, Scheherazade snare drum part, your chops are probably pretty decent. That's mm -hmm. a good place to start with. Well, and let's face it, you know, there's a reason some of these pop artists, they want to do concerts with the symphony orchestra backing them up, you know. Right. They know that a percussionist, you know, who can wail on Porgy and Bess, you know, well, if they get up there doing a show tune and they got a ballot part that you got to read, you know, they figure they got cream of the crop right there. You know? Right, right. There you go. So through all the years, what would you say was one of your most memorable moments on stage? You know, one experience was, it was during a rehearsal. It was Beethoven Violin Concerto. Pinkas mm -hmm. Zuckerman, uh, uh -huh. Zuckerman was the, the soloist and conductor. When we came out, we came down to dress rehearsal, he walked out on stage to tune his violin. He tuned it to the timpani. <laughs> he, he turned to me and then he said, uh, let me have an A from the from timpani. And he tuned it. He, he says, oh, that's good. You know, I'm like, <laughs> you know, I guess I do play a musical instrument. You know, after all. Uh, and the thing is, Pinky rehearsals or performances, he usually tunes backstage and he's tuned mm -hmm. when he comes out. Right. This particular morning, I think he must have been running late or something. He came out and he hadn't tuned yet. Yeah. So imagine he turned to me and, and says, uh, let me have an aid from the timpani. What did what did the oboe player say? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, know, you taking over his here. taking over their job, man. <laughs> yeah. So that was one very memorable moment. Uh, yeah. Another very memorable moment that I like to forget was Yo Yo Ma was playing, and I was uh, sitting there not playing, you know, just counting rest, and I I positioned my hand to kind of rest my hand on the stick like this, uh -oh. and one of the sticks slipped out. <laughs> <laughs> and failed to hit the gun. And it happened at the most quiet moment. I mean, it was loud, man. It was really loud. And, uh, uh, and I this remember, was a, uh, this was a concert. This was the concert. Oh, oh, yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> nowhere to hide. Everybody knew where it was coming from. You know, yeah. I looked down, and there was. A, but yo, 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 he just, you know. Didn't flinch, didn't miss a, miss a beat, you know what? Right, right. You know, we joked about it afterwards, but it wasn't right. funny at the time. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty cool. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad it happened to you and not me. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so those are uh, two uh, up and down moments I can think of offhand. Yeah. You, you alluded to the fact that earlier that your orchestra, Seattle, they played a lot of repertoire, a lot of repertoire that other orchestras did not do. And you mentioned the Hanson symphonies, but I also note William Schumann. Did you record his complete orchestral catalog also? Yeah. 
So what was that like doing all of these pieces? They're challenging. I know the Schumann pieces are challenging. Uh, oh, but, yeah. You know, there's no basis. You probably had no recordings to listen to. You guys created the catalog. Yeah, what was right. that like? <laughs> yeah, it was very challenging, you know, and, and it really gets you up on your toes, you know, when you know you're recording stuff that's not out there and the whole world's going to be listening to it, you know. Right, uh, right. Uh, it's not intimidating, but it's very, it's, it's inspiring. And, you know, it makes you kind of nervous at the same time. You know, you really yeah. want things to, to be right. And, uh, you know, you mentioned something about engineers. One, I forget which symphony it was we were playing. There are two large sections, and they, there was a complete four-drum change between the first section and the next section. And there wasn't a lot of time in between to do it. And we uh, played through it twice, you know, and I nailed it. I was on top of all of them, you know. And then... When there was a listen to a playback, they said, oh, you know, we got to go back and fix something for the old boy, the clarinet or, or something. They didn't tell me where that was going to be, you uh -huh. know. And then uh, they started at a spot where I started and I had to change the notes back to the original. Right. And uh, we fixed that. And then they jumped ahead to the next session where, you know, it was a completely different key. Right. And they just started before I was ready, you know. So yeah, I said, well, you know, we, you you guys started. I told Jerry, you, you started before I was ready. And I had these note changes. Oh, no, you know, you're fine. You know, we got it from we got it from before. You know, they said we got it from before early. Well, right. guess what? When that recording came out, they uh -oh. used that one where I was uh. playing in the wrong. Yeah, right. <laughs> Man, right. I was mad. <laughs> I mean, that was a big, big, I mean, I guess if you don't have a score in front of you, you don't know that, but right, I right. knew it. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, yeah. And that <laughs> brushing you off saying, oh, no, you're fine. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's Mike. He doesn't make mistakes. You know, I'm like, uh, <laughs> there are those times that things like that happen. It's out of your control. So, exactly. you know, you, you just got to go with it. So, jeez. So other works, anything stick out? Any particular piece that, you know, is not so-called standard rep that you did, performed or recorded that sticks out in, in memory for positive reasons or, or negative? I don't have any negative, but one work that really sticks out that I, I wouldn't mind if I never played again is uh, The Mystic Trumpeter by uh, Howard Hansen. It's a big four-drum solo that... Uh, I mean, it's a monster uh, that we that we recorded, and uh, uh, you know, I mean, I look back on it with pride. But man, we never actually performed it live either. We just recorded it, you know. I see. But I uh, see. yeah, it, it it's a bear. It, yeah, it was really. Uh, I never realized that I was that fast getting from low to high, yeah, and back and forth, you know, on yeah. the, until to that piece. You know, I, I guess uh, sometimes nerves can be an incentive. <laughs> yeah, you know? that's true. So, yeah. yeah, but yeah. Uh, that's what immediately comes to mind. I really like that piece. And it should be on every Tiffany audition there is, but it's it's not. Yeah. So through the years with Seattle, you used the ringer drums? Primarily. Uh, there were times during run out, I used a set of Goodman drums, an inside pedal and two outside chain drums. Uh -huh. uh, and then when I got rid of the Goodmans, I used my teacher's drums that he built. Rich O'Donnell, he built the set of Tiffany. And he gave me, it was his original set. He gave it to me. Wow. And uh, I was using those. When I first got to the orchestra, I had an incomplete set of lights. Uh, uh -huh. I had two of the uh, original lights. It's a 25 and 28. They looked like Goodman Timpani. Uh -huh. uh, they was heavy as heck. 
you know, that that <laughs> that frame, it was like it was like cast iron or something like that. Right. The drum right. sounded really good. Yeah. And it was just the two of them. I was wishing I had four, but it was just the two of them. And when I showed him the Marshall, I sent him the picture and he said, Ah, yeah, his dad had built them. You know, it had the imperfections and stuff, you know, that, yeah. Uh, yeah. but still yeah. they were that, that was a very uh, classic set of drums. How have mallets changed for you over the years? Did you end up using pretty much what you used all the time from the beginning? Or did you evolve mm -hmm. with the mallets that you used? No, I, I evolved. I started out using, uh, I started out with the Vic Firth type mallets. And then, uh, no, I'm sorry, I started out with the, the, the Goodman type mallets. And then I added Firth. And then when Rick started making mallets, they were really basically the Goodman mallets, only they were extended shafts. They were longer right. shafts. Right. So that hard rock maple type of mallet yeah. Yeah. is what I started out using. And then I switched. Dave Herbert, I, I saw some of his mallets. Tom Stubbs had some. He sent me a couple of pair to try, and I really liked them. I really liked his mallets quite a bit. And the thing that caught my attention about them was that for my ear, on my drums, uh, the mallets had a very good a range. You know, mm -hmm. like the hard, the rock maple type mallets, I noticed when I got loud, you mm -hmm. know, you, you, the uh, contact would take over. Right. Uh, you know, you hear less stuff. In the lower register, I found that I started uh, experimenting with, with bamboo. And with the bamboo, I found that they spoke quicker in the soft range. But then when I got louder, the tone cracked, you know, became kind of thin and brittle. Right. Well, what right. I'm leading up to is that when I tried Davis mallets, I got that complete range. They sounded good in the low range. And then when I got high in the upper range, it maintained that quality of sound. Right. At least that's the way it sounded to me. And yeah. then what I did from there, I wanted to make sure I grabbed a woodwind player, brass player, the string player, and I set them down. And I first had them sit with their back to me. And I went through all these mallets that I had, the ones previous, and then the Herbert mallets I was trying. I tried it and uh, asked them, you know, which one to their ear sounded good. They picked the Herbert mallets, right? Wow. Then I had them, yeah, and then I had them face me. Yeah. And I did the same thing. And then they said, well, we like those mallets. Well, it was, the, it was the Herbert mallets again. You know, I went through the whole range, you know, everything. So... That kind of confirmed what I was hearing, you know, right. what I started to prefer. But I also think the drums has something to do with it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. it, it, oh, I sure. think on, yeah, because some some mallets I think speak well, speak better on certain types of drums than they do others. You know, yeah. Whereas yeah. There's, there's some, and it's kind of like you know, like I like ringers, but to me, the the ringer, if you really wanted a maximum quality of sound, you need a calf. You know, mm -hmm. they just did not speak as well or sing as well with synthetic heads than they did with cap. Right. That's just right. sort of, whereas, you know, with the light drums that I heard, like yours in particular, the quality of sound was just there, whether it was, uh, you know, with synthetic, you know, right. you can tell as good as they sound with synthetic heads, then you know they're going to sound really great with with cap, you know, with with cap, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. but anyway, about the mallets, that's what changed my mind ab about them. You know, I just started playing and listening closely, and I just found that the ones that I that I picked maintained the quality of sound throughout the dynamic range of playing. Right, and I think that's a lesson learned 
for our protégés in our program is that you want to always listen, you want to always learn, and don't be set in your ways. Just yeah. because a pair of mallets, whether it's snare drum or uh, xylophone, whatever, whatever working for you now, be open in the future for a different sound. I like to never say it's better or worse. It's just a different sound, you know. Hopefully your ears always develop and change over the years, and I hope for the better, <laughs> not for the worse, where, you know, you've gained the experience. So the, the sound you create should match your experience, and it, it should mature, ideally. Yeah, and that's, you know, uh, one of the things I would tell my students whenever I got the chance or felt a need to point that out, I would remind them that music is a progressive art. You know, it doesn't begin and end with any one particular individual or any particular approach. It's constantly evolving. It's constantly growing. And if you're going to be a musician, you got to be able to do that. You got to grow with it. You know, you get right. stuck in your ways and, you know, you're missing the abundance of it all. Right. When you allow that to happen. Yeah, you get left behind. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> What you do worked then, but things have evolved. And I mean, that's what orchestras are. As we started off at the beginning of this session, we're talking about how orchestras have really evolved. The job has evolved and you need to evolve with it. Otherwise, right. you know, there will be issues. There will be problems. And you always need to keep your ears and your eyes open to what's going on, what's new. Try different mallets, try different drums, try different heads, whatever. Try different instruments. Why not? I mean, one of the one of the things I don't like in the percussion section is using one bass drum for everything, you know, <laughs> or one or two pairs of crash cymbals for everything or one triangle. And I know when it's your equipment, you have a certain limit on how many snare drums you can buy, obviously. But, you know, when it's with an orchestra, an orchestra can afford to have three or four bass drums. You know, I would say one bass drum that you do Mahler with, one bass drum you do Mozart and Beethoven with, you know, et cetera, yeah. because it's yeah. a different style. It's a different time. And, and of course, everything is in tune to where you're performing. You know, it's a big concert hall versus a small chamber group versus outdoors, indoors, et cetera. So right. be aware of your surroundings, uh, whether you're not at an audition, that can be a different sound too. Uh, yeah. You're, you're yeah. completely exposed in an audition. So you gotta be very critical of the sound you're making versus when you're playing with an orchestra, which can be a little bit different. Yeah, and, and you know, you made a good point about being aware of your environment. That's what kind of bugs me. I've had some conductors say, they want you to use small drums and wood sticks. You know, right. Because right. in their mind, they're asking you to be original. Right. <laughs> and I mean, you know, I, I don't if that's what they want to do, you know, I'll I'll do it. Right. I, I just, you know, because that's my role as their tempted. But what they don't realize is that if you get smaller drums to play in today's concert halls that seat twenty five hundred people, you know. <laughs> You may think you're sounding like it did back in Mozart's day or, you know, Ice day, but you're not. They ask us to do that, but then they want to ask trumpet players to use original trumpets. Right. You know, it's just because they just have this mindset. They're being authentic. Now, basically, I, I think they're just trying to avoid getting too heavier a sound. And I can appreciate that, you know, but right. leave it up to the player, you know, just, right. you know, exactly. express yourself musically and say, well, you know, I don't want a big, a, a big sound here. You know, I want 
more, you know, champion music type of character, you know, right, for right. for this piece or that piece. And then, you know, you can adjust from there. But don't, you know, don't just say use hard sticks and small drums. I mean, right. that, you know, right. Uh, yeah. Be aware well, of your environment, like you just said. We want to give the conductor respect for who they are, what they do, and we want equal respect for who we are and what we do too. We we're trained musicians, believe it or not. You know, yeah. we've gone through years of study, and you know, we want the same respect that you'd give to the violinist or the the cellist or whatever. You know, right? So, and it's in part how they say or make a request or ask. I like it when they ask, not say, you know, we need, you need wood sticks here. Well, that's your opinion, you know, and I respect it. You're, you're the boss and I, I will do, yeah. but you know, you kind of leave it up to me. Maybe I can get a similar sound with the sticks I'm using, but maybe I can be more articulate for you. Let me try that before changing yeah. to something more drastic. Right. Right. Yeah. I like when they address me musically, too, about it. So, you know, like Marshall Swartz would say, Mike, I like to get a, a dry. I like to have a drier sound here. Yeah. You know, he lays it out. And then I go with what, you know, I think he interprets as the drier sound, you know, or Ludovic Marlowe, he, you know, say, hey, Mike, it sounds too heavy here. You know, I like right. for it to be lighter. So yeah. see, when he says heavy, that means for him, the sound is too big. You know, he right. wants something that's more streamlined, you know. Uh, another conductor, an assist, one of our assistant conductors in the past, you know, he once, we were playing a Mozart symphony. And uh, in the last movie, he says, he says, Mike, it sounds too much like Mozart. He says, I like to cheat a little bit here and have it sound more like Beethoven, you know, uh, like Beethoven's third. Yeah. See, I like, right. I like when they, yeah. you know, I can yeah. identify them. Right. But when, when a conductor just says, you know, I want you to use wood sticks. You know, and you know who I get? I get that a lot from is German conductors. Ah. You know, whenever that, yeah, they'll they'll say, okay, of course you're going to use wood mallets here, right? You know, of course. <laughs> you know, and I, I like one one conductor at, at, a, at mostly most of asked me to use snare drum sticks on the timpani. Wow, he wanted, he wanted snare, yeah, and I yeah. finally I had to I had to say something because. First of all, they weren't my drums. They had calf heads on them, you know, and I wasn't going to start playing these with these pointed snare drum sticks and, you know, run the risk of, you know what I mean, punch on the head. Yeah. So I yeah. went and I talked to them. I expressed concern about it. And then I made suggestions. Basically, if I had a double-end mallet where one end was felt and the other was wood. Right. So for the really exposed parts, I would play the wood end. Uh -huh. And then for the less exposed parts of the more blending, I will play the the melody. But I got away from the snare drum sticks is the, is the point. <laughs> and when he saw me maneuvering the sticks, you know, he jokingly said, well, do they pay you enough for that? And I says, <laughs> well, no, but I'll do it anyway. You know, we kind of laughed it off, <laughs> that, that kind of thing, you know. Now, right. you know, I could have said, and I, I, think th th I think this is really important. I could have said, when he asked for snare drum stick, you know, I could have said, uh, no, I'm not sure we don't we don't do that here. That's not an appropriate approach. You know, fronting him off like that in front of the orchestra. You yeah. know, I mean, and he yeah. was a guest conductor, right? This was Jerry's right. gig. You know, right. most of, and right. I, I could have took that stance with him, right? But yeah. now, let's say I did that with this guy. Okay, three years later, the Seattle Symphony announces the search for a new music director. Right. 
And then guess who gets the job? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you really have to think past your own agenda. And working with these conductors, that's to me, that's a part of you being flexible musically. Exactly. You know, and not set in your ways, you know. It's, right. It's not right. always about right or wrong. It's about communication. Yes. Yeah. And as with any supervisor boss, they like it when you're flexible, you know, yeah. Yeah. you know, as opposed to just saying no or whatever, you know, it, it's, it's the way it should go. And I, I think of an example, my teacher, Mitchell Peters, that you know, and you met, he told me he was doing a piece, contemporary piece years ago, and it called for the timpanist to play on the bowls of the drums. Uh -huh. And Mitch said, no, <laughs> you know, he's not going to do That's not what our instruments are intended for. And Mitch told me, <laughs> I don't think he told the conductor or the composer, but he told me if they want to provide the timpani, I'll play on your bowls for them. But I'm not going to play on the bowls of our timpani because that's not yeah. what the instrument is intended for. Yeah. So you, you, you got a couple of things there. The composer writing to to do something on our instrument that's really not not intended that's not the way the drum i mean that that's a part of the contemporary thing trying to create different sounds whatever i remember a composer had me put some masking tape on the drum on the timpani and then rip it off i got an old funky head and put it on and did it you know just to please him for that but i would never do that on my my good yeah. heads, put masking tape on my heads and rip it off. It's like, oh, yeah, come on. Good, yeah. But you know, but you, you were you, you flexible. Did. Well, I did. You I, got some I, crappy I, drums. And then... There you go. Well, the drums were good. It's just the heads were bad. I, head, I saved that's some old I mean. heads. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it, yes. it, that's the point is to be flexible and, you know, uh, respectful. And like you were saying, it's one thing if it's a music director, it's another thing if it's a guest conductor. I would hope that the guest conductors, they come to our orchestra and they don't change our seating. This is the way our orchestra sits, as in, you know, cellos and basses and whatever. But a lot of times they did that with the LA Phil, which I didn't like. They'd move us all around to whoever's conducting. I think it should be this is our orchestra. This is our sound. This is the way we play. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and then asking the timpanist to do some unusual things. I mean, I, you know, some things I think are fine, but other things it's like, you're just the guest this week. And I shouldn't say just, but you're a guest conductor this week, you know, and you want it to be your style and your sound, but to a certain degree, you're conducting this orchestra and this is who we are. Yeah. Uh, that's one thing that Gerard Schwartz, he laid down a law. He, he got a straight clear with management, whoever guest conducted, because, you know, he had to say so on who came and guest conducted. But that was right. one of his cardinal rules is that you don't change the setup of his orchestra. Yeah. I mean, it, it keeps the continuity there. Yeah. You know, sure. and it, it, it's it's the identity of the orchestra, too. The sound is created in part by how it's set up on stage. Yeah. And and what mallets the timpanist decides to use, you know? Yeah. I mean, do they ask the trumpet player to use the trombone's mouthpiece, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Or yeah. the bassoon player to use an English horn mouthpiece? No. I mean, uh, reeds? No. Yeah. No. Well, I know I'm pushing a little bit far, but, <laughs> you know, it. I the bottom line for me, it's maybe it's more so for percussion versus timpani. I don't know. But 
I think we have to stand up for ourselves and stand up for what we do. We are professional musicians. We are trained musicians and we want respect for what we do. And we give respect to our conductors and whether they're guest conductors or the music directors. But, you know, we are professionals. That's the bottom line in what we well, do. You know, I, 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 I got to tell you, it's I'm, I'm usually, uh, you know, I've always pride myself on, you know, adjusting and working through situations, you know, with conductors. But there was this one guy we got. It was a, uh, it wasn't a pops concert, but it was kind of like a pops light classic type deal. And uh, this one piece, there were media changes all over the place uh, in crucial spots. This conductor never got it right. I mean, he just, he obviously did not know what he was doing. And it was just, you know, rehearsals, it was never clean during rehearsals. You know, it, it, we always stopped at that spot and had to start over. Right. You know, and stumble through it. And then even in the dress rehearsal was worse. You know, we just kept stopping, you know, and, and people said, well, you know, we're not following you here for, you know, no, oh, I'm sorry. You know, you know, they start again and it, it was really bad. We got down to the performance and leading into it, it was worse than the rehearsals and it was threatening to fall apart. I had big interests. So I just started playing and Johnny D. Lane would be proud of this. I just started playing. <laughs> I started playing really loud. <laughs> I mean, obnoxiously I'm, I'm loud. And Mike Werner adjusted and he followed me. Yeah. And then when he did that, the rest of the orchestra followed suit and it right. held together. You know, all yeah. this changing up from 5-8 to 7-8 to 3-4 to 4-4. Yeah. You know, right. I just started banging it. You know, yeah. when intermission came, management uh, was backstage, the uh, general manager and our operations manager. And I walked up to them and I said, if this guy ever comes back and conducts, I'm not playing that service. Yeah, I told him, I said, this is ridiculous. You guys, you expect certain standards out of me as a musician. You know, I expect that same thing, whoever you put on the podium. Exactly. I said, because this, we ran the risk of a major embarrassment in front of our, in front of a house full of Benaroya uh, pages. Right. Yeah. That was the first time I've ever took that initiative, you know, to complain and to say and to protest and say, I'm not going to play if this person comes back again and right. conducts. Right. You know what? Never, Never came, came back. back. Yeah. Never yeah. came yeah. back. Yeah. yeah. It well, was really bad. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's a good thing that it only happened that one time. But you know, it it shows to speak that you know, you got you got to let them know. You got to let them know yeah. there 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 yeah. are certain uh, boundaries that should not be crossed and. It, you know, it's what they expect of us is what we expect of them. We're all at a professional level. So, yeah, that's that's how we maintain our art and keep it going forward is keeping the standards as high as we can. So, uh -huh. Mike, I cannot tell you what a pleasure. We have to continue this, man. We have a lot more to cover. Okay. You know, <laughs> so this, yeah. this has been great. I really appreciate you sharing with us and obviously one of the founders of ABOP and propelling that on forward. So like I said, we'll just do this again. Promise me that. Yeah, I promise, bro. All right. Thank you. We'll talk again soon. All right, man. That concludes this episode with ABOP founder, Mr. Michael Crusoe. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Please follow our podcast and check us out on our website at www.abop.us. We greatly appreciate your support. We are the Alliance of Black Orchestral Percussionists, ABOP, 
Thank you for listening.